from Hong Kong, Chicago and the city of Stoke-on-Trent. This is the Classic Lenses Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 82. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Johnny Sisson and Perry G. Hello, Johnny. Hello, good morning. And hello, Perry. Hello. Okay, well, before we get going, I just want to say thanks to last week's guest, uh, Edward Noble, for guiding us through his work. Um, in particular, we were talking about uh, bokeh panoramas and infrared photography. So thanks for that, Ed. It was, it was really interesting. Super technical, but really interesting. So, uh, Bokeh-rama. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and actually, that was, that was something. Um, we, I've just read... Uh, the summary of the show uh, by oh, yeah. a friend of the show um, on the best vintage lenses, uh, Ricardo Bayon, Bayon. and um, that's a, that's a, it's a, it's another good read, especially when it gets to the bit about talking about your your question, Johnny. Have we actually worked out what your question means yet? I don't think out. I knew what I was asking. So good luck for the rest of y'all. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if, you, if you've not listened to that that, that show yet, um, then yeah, there was there was a question there that that's, that sounds fantastic, but none of us can really quite make out what what, what to do with it. Um, I it was, thought it made sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh, could you explain that to us then? Then. Yeah, I mean, like photography is the capturing of a still moment in time, right? Yeah. And so with like the what Johnny was asking about a series uh, bokeh panorama that kind of left all the imperfections from movement in it's like you've got a still image with the element of time incorporated in a kind of unique way it made total sense it's a constructed single moment out of many moments that are not one moment so there's yeah. a, there's a there is a bit of a an odd thing there that would not exist except for the fact that it's in the digital realm and era that was there, there was that was probably a- my there was a guy in the uh, Classic Lenses podcast Facebook group, uh, Michael Bartasek. Who, oh, I was going to mention that. Yeah. 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 He, he posted some pictures of like essentially what I think sort of multiple exposures. Right. But it was blended, um, you know, sequential shots blended into one. And it's really cool. you got like a dude skateboarding and you see him kind of kick flipping off a ramp and then um, his celebration afterwards when he lands it. But in the same frame, that's, that's exactly right. the kind of idea. Yeah. It's it's funny as you mentioned that uh, because I was when I saw those pictures that Michael posted there, I was thinking and, and knowing about some of the subject matter we're going to be talking about this week, I thought to myself it'd be quite cool to get him on there this week. But then I realised that well, one we're recording a day earlier than normal, and we're recording even earlier than normal, and uh, <laughs> right. and Michael's over on the west coast as well. So yeah, um, so I thought I bet we can get him on another time though. I think we should. We should. We should yeah. ask him if he, well if he if he wants to come on. That isn't cool. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, okay, well let's uh, let's, let's <laughs> move move things on. Um, let oh, there's been a huge event that's happened in Chicago. <laughs> I mean, this is a massive event attended by ones. Now, if if anybody's been living under a rock for the last week or few days or so, Johnny, perhaps you might want to explain what has gone down. Well, you if you if you've been living under a rock, you would not know about the first annual Novakian photo walk and pub crawl that happened yesterday in Chicago. so yes, the prodigal gnome Mike Novak returned to his his roots here in Chicago, um, and 
did all kinds of Chicago things. He's actually still here. Uh, so, but he 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 returned with the express intention of going out on the town with cameras and hanging out with some other uh, fellow photographers. So we had a little little, little get together in honor of Mike Novak. Um, and he um, he stopped by uh, Central Camera with uh, the gang, and then they went out and. I don't know. I, I think they may have spent more time inside drinking than they did outside photographing. I've yet to get the full itinerary. I was working, so I, I was I was not a participant in most of the day. Um, I was a kind of an organizer or, or you know influencer, but not not really a participant until later in the day. Um, but they they uh, they spent some some time walking around downtown Chicago, taking pictures. It was really funny because right after they left central camera to head uh, towards millennium park, which is kind of the big gathering place downtown. There was a, uh, I, I guess it was a, it was like a, I, I still can't figure it out. It, it was either a um, animal rights protest March or a pro vegan March. I'm still not sure, but there were just, there were, there were people, walking down the street and chanting and looking unhappy probably because they don't eat bacon. And, <laughs> uh, and I think they got some pictures of that. And then, so it was a typical kind of Chicago, uh, afternoon where there was all kinds of really weird things happening downtown. So they did that. And then, um, uh, they went, they actually headed up to my neighborhood to go to a place called the independence tap, um, and that's where I met up with them later and had, I, I had one drink. I have not had a drop of alcohol really for three months. And I had, I had one glass of Bushmills black and it was really good, but I, I felt it in my head in a, in a way immediately that let me know that I still can't be drinking anything. So that was a great experience. Um, anyway, um, a big shout out to, uh, Mike Novak and to uh, Jose Luis Uribe and Eric Rice and Sonia Milan and Michael uh, Braslo, who all showed up and were at Independence Tap last night. And there was a live band and we took pictures and people asked us, what are you people doing with cameras? Are you from the <laughs> newspaper? And we kept trying to say, no, we're just nerds with cameras. And, you know, it was it was it was pretty fun. It was a very welcoming uh, place to hang out. And I know Mike was there yesterday and had a nice conversation with the bartender who is a camera guy. Like he, I I've been in there before and he's engaged me on camera conversations. Like he actually knows cameras. Um, cause I think like his brother-in-law or somebody is a big camera guy. So I went in there once with my, my, my Canon P and he's like, is that a Leica? And I said, Oh, it's a Canon. And we had a whole conversation. Anyway, um, fun time last night. There's a bunch of pictures floating around, on uh i think mainly in the vintage camera collectors groups so you can take a a look there um we got the uh you know the typical shot of all the cameras piled up on the table that you got to have when you go on a a photo walk and end up at a bar there's a um, there's a distinct lack of a, a picture with you in it though what's going on there well maybe i mike that mike took some i know for sure 
Um, and Sonia took some, I know for sure. So maybe they'll show up over somewhere on the internet. Um, and then, and then of course the rest of us, were all shooting films. So depending on when all that gets done, Mike, Mike Novak is pretty good about getting his film fairly promptly processed and out in the world. So I'm sure there'll be pictures of me on there. Cause we were all taking pictures of each other. Uh, so I'm sure, you know, pictures, uh, photographic evidence to be shared. In did the, you did you get a chance to play with his uh, Canon VL and uh, 35 Biogon he's been waving around? Um, yes, I did, in fact. And the the VL is man, that is a nice camera. I mean, it's really in to my uh, to my inspection. It's not that much different from a Canon P, except that you know, the switchable viewfinder, yeah. which is definitely a little bit um, crisper than the Canon P viewfinder. Um, but it handles basically exactly the same. Um, and it's, it, it's basically like a, you know, like the trigger version of the camera, but with a lever and I've handled the trigger version of that camera quite a bit. So I would, yeah, I would love to have one of those. Although I, 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 I mean, I, I actually use the viewfinder on my uh, Canon P because it has frame lines, but I probably would never use the viewfinder on that um, that 5L because it doesn't have frame lines. So it just has the, you know, you can set the individual magnification to match your lens, yeah. but there's no frame lines. So I would never actually use the viewfinder. So that I, I kind of stick with the Canon P as a camera where at least at 50 millimeters, I actually use the viewfinder and the rangefinder um, rather than an external. Uh, I use that external with a 35 on the Canon P, but I, and for 50, for 50, I actually use the viewfinder. Um, so, but I don't think I would if I had the 5L. And it's, it's a, a one-to-one on the Canon P. Yes. It's yeah, one-to-one I, also, which is nice. So. I, I used to have a VL. Um, wait, wait, hold on. First of all, you're blowing my mind here. It's 5L, which totally makes sense, but I had no idea. So yeah, it's like, well, it's 5L get, and 5T. Yeah, it's well, it's V, it's VL. I think VL is fine, but it's five. I mean, it's like the 4SB. The yeah. IVSB is a 4SB. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I, I didn't realize that the camera was so um, so difficult to come by because I picked one up a couple years ago for cheap in Japan and then sold it off in Hong Kong uh, for a profit when I wasn't really using it. But looking yeah. back, like, I mean, it's there, a little bit smaller than the P and it's just, it's such a nice LTM shooter. Yeah. And the, it's the, the, it's still abs- absurd to me that those Canon, those cannons have gone up in price, but there were less than 10,000 of that camera might made. In fact, I think less than 5,000 of that camera made. And uh, if it was a Nikon, it would be probably selling for 10 grand. You know what I mean? If it was a yeah. Nikon range. So it's absurd to me that they're still, I mean, you can still, those are, it's hard to find, but you can still find that camera easily under $500. I got it. I got crazy. it two years ago for 50 pounds. That's, that's nuts. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh. Considering how well made it is. I mean, they're, yeah. they're arguably the best LTM rangefinders ever made. I mean, they're, they're, they're way nicer than any of the Leicas, any series of the Leica LTMs. They're much easier to load. Oh, I'm such an yeah. idiot. Yeah. Anyway, so see, now you got to go buy another one. 
Um, so yeah, that and 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 the yeah, the bygone is beautiful. It's basically like a not shitty version of the you know the Jupiter Twelve. Yeah, um, it's like a, just a very nice version of the Jupiter Twelve. Um, and I I did find a uh, a Series Six adapter for Mike for that, so he's got that on there now, so he can. So now he has a Series Six adapter, and he can put a filter on it. Which makes it really great because then you can't change the aperture, um, which is kind of awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> without taking the filter off. <laughs> so it's you know it, it, that's the thing about that lens. It's still a really wonky design, but yeah. it's much more nicely executed than a Jupiter Twelve. <laughs> so, um, yeah. and the image quality is you know of course exceptional. Um, anyway. Uh, yes, so I, I handled I handled the um, uh, the VL slash five L, and the uh, and the uh, the Biogon, and they were they're both lovely. So I'm I'm still confused about what you're saying about frame lines, though, because the 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 camera has that magnification in the viewfinder, so you set the viewfinder so that it's a I assume a a thirty five or a yeah. fifty or whatever. Yeah. Right, um, so, no frame lines, but no frame lines but what you actually see is effectively the frame line so where well you you see the 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 entire viewfinder is your you know what you use for framing i just on on range finders i don't like that experience yeah. i like i like frame lines i don't like not seeing outside the edge of the lens area in the finder yeah um, cuz because like yeah go no go ahead I just like your your the distance of your eye to the the viewfinder will affect the field of view that you see. Right, the frame it's, lines give you a really clear indication of where your yeah. image is, and then where like what's outside the the yeah. framing, right? And and no and no matter what view camera it is, yeah, the edges of the frame are always somewhat indistinct. It's just the nature of that design. I mean, it's the edges of the frame are always going to be you know, not as sharp as what you're looking at. And I just find it very distracting. Um, and I much prefer a viewfinder with actual frame lines, like bright lines showing the edge of the frame versus just the whole viewfinder being your, you know, your framing device. So, so yeah, that's my what, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like all the Canon LTM cameras, like you could take like just all of them and put them on a table. And which actually I kind of have half of that right here in front of me. Um, I feel like, but the, to me, it's like, there is no one perfect Canon LTM rangefinder camera. Like you, you could, if you could take the bits and pieces of about four different cameras and put them into one camera, you would have like the ultimate perfect rangefinder ever made, but that doesn't exist. So <laughs> I I think I'm still sticking with the P as the best, uh, my as my favorite at this point. So it's like if I could have the P with the brighter viewfinder of the 5L, but the P's frame lines, but the switchable actual frame yeah. lines of the seven, <laughs> it would be perfect. That would, but, that would be that would be awesome. Yeah, but there's no one Canon LTM camera that has all of those features in one camera. So you have to, that's what I like about them is you have to kind of pick and choose the one that's closest to what you like. And you're, you're still going to end up with a really damn nice range finder. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> anyway, we were talking about the photo walk, weren't we? Um, <laughs> and then Simon threw that question out there and I got all off track. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, so any other questions about that event? <clears throat> it was, it was, uh, it was fun. I, I, you know, I've never met Mike in person before and it's like, he's like a brother, man. He's like, he, <laughs> I mean, it's no, it's seriously, it's crazy. It's like, it's like Carl. It's like, I never actually met Carl ever once in person, which still drives me freaking crazy, but we're, you know, close like brothers. Right. And, um, so it's really very special to meet Mike in person um, and actually, you know, get to talk with them. It was really, really nice. So, so yes, that was excellent. And, and I think he will definitely be back in Chicago for a future photo walk. So if you missed it, you need to, we will do a more advanced uh, warning next time. And you got to come out and, and hang out. It was a lot of fun. And we, we keep saying it, but we need to get Mike back on the show as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we really do. Yeah. Right then. So, Perry, you've you've yep. had your uh, – a lens has arrived. Um, yes. That's going to be given away at some point in the near future. Um, and you've been yep. trying it. So I received a nice little package from the UK uh, containing the Konica 40 1.8. Um, and a, uh, a, a chocolate bar, uh, <laughs> which, uh, it's, I, let me talk briefly about the chocolate bar just to continue our <laughs> culinary theme. Um, it, it was something called a tunnux, which, which Simon somehow managed to smuggle through customs. Um, and it is a, well, well t- Simon, is this a British delicacy? Uh, well, <laughs> Brit- British and Scottish, if, if you, to, to be Scottish, perhaps yes. more, more precise. Well, they're still part of Britain for for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a a, a Tunnock's caramel bar. Um, that's to to give it its uh, its correct name. And incidentally, um, when people buy things on uh, my eBay page or on my off my website, and I recognise the name for being somebody in, that's active in the one of the Facebook groups or a follower on uh, Instagram and things like that. Um, they, they, they tend to get a tunnux uh, slipped in there as well. Special people get a tunnux. <laughs> well, thank you for that. That was a, an enjoyable little treat. Um, but the, the lens, onto the lens. Um, yeah, so I've been, I've been playing with it. Uh, I shot, I've been shooting kind of stuff around the house. Um, I took it out to lunch today and I've been doing various test shots. Um, and then I also took it out at night for like a serious stress test. Um, and I think I've used it enough to have a pretty solid sense of like sort of how it performs. Um, so first of all, on the Sony, uh, a sevens body, it, it, it's beautifully balanced. Like the handling on the Sony, I think is its best selling point because with a lot of SLR lenses, the adapter is huge. And so it kind of like juts out in a, in a pretty unpleasant way, but this is just a perfect size. Um, as for the performance of the lens itself, it's kind of interesting. Like, wide open, it's not great. Um, it's pretty soft. Uh, it has a kind of, like, glowiness about it. But, like, when you stop it down to uh, f2.8, it, it becomes, like, a totally different lens. Um, the the fall-off uh, really tightens up. 
and it becomes a lot sharper. Like wide open, it has some wild chromatic aberration. Um, and 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 on an as an aside, I don't know if this is like just me making stuff up, but have you guys noticed that SLR lenses tend to suffer from like worse chromatic aberration uh, on digital than yeah rangefinder lenses? Yes, I have noticed that personally. Yeah. So it's like the distance between the back of the lens and the sensor just gives the light more space to screw up, right? I'm I'm not entirely buying into that one. Um, I mean, certainly should, the, the the conditions that you're going to be shooting in um, are, are yeah. going to make a huge difference and wide open and so on. But I've I've certainly had uh, chromatic aberration appear with uh, with with rangefinder lenses. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, but whether or not, as you say, whether or not it's it's worse or or not, I don't I don't really know. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'm making like a a, a gross generalization there. Um, but on on the lens itself, um, I think like there's two things that I I noticed about it. Number one, when you stop it down uh, at f two point eight, it's got like that sort of ninja star bokeh that you get in uh, some context Yashica AE lenses. Um, and then secondly, like the edges are really, really poor. Um, but I think what that means for this lens is it, it would actually make a really good sort of general purpose or portrait lens on both uh, full frame and APS-C because of the focal length. Like, if you don't care about the edges, it's uh, it's an astonishingly good lens for how much it costs. But if you're shooting, like, I shot some nightscapes in Hong Kong with, like, the sort of city uh, the city skyline. And even stopped down to, you know, F4, F5.6, the, the coma and astigmatism and just general, like, field curvature <clears throat> on the edges really screws that up. Well, I, th I think there's one, one of the things that um, I think people have to always take into consideration is that it is a pancake lens. And mm. lenses that are designed conventionally are not pancake lenses. So I think by by definition, to to make a lens uh, shorter, fat, uh, flatter, whichever way you, you you want to say it, you I would I would imagine you've got to introduce some kind of compromise into into the design. Um, otherwise, all lenses will be quite flat. So so I'm guessing that that's actually like the the, the trade off that you're getting. And in fact, actually, it's very, it's very fast as well for for that that kind of lens as mm -hmm. well. Certainly for for a semi wide, um, it's it's like the wide end of the standard end, isn't it? But uh, um, yeah. I don't actually know what the actual configuration is. But it, it just the look of what you're describing around the edges just is quite similar to what I was describing with that uh, that Heliar, uh, the mm -hmm. Pentax one, the fifty eight uh, two point four. Um, it had the look of the shots had a similar kind of effect where you could see the um, I, I can never work out whether it's coma or astigmatism or whichever but uh, so things were going wrong at the edges with points of light and uh, and it, it just reminded me of that so I'm just wondering if um, they they pushed the design uh, I you know I've got to jump in and just obvious say the obvious here and blame blame this on digital of course because i've <laughs> shot this lens on film on my konica at 2.8 and in black and white and there ain't none of that shit happening it's fine so i either 
I wonder if either I, I you know, I'm really suspect of the bad copy argument. Everybody always done about it must be a bad copy. I don't, I, I tend to think it's more a censor thing. Um, yeah, it, it, it might well be a Sony thing here because I, I think this lens is performing to spec. It's in really good shape. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like I'm crapping on it, but I'm not. It's 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 an no, astonishingly no. good, yeah, uh, general purpose lens because like I compared it against um my SMC Takamar 55 1.8 which is also a kind of budget lens in the sort of normal range. And right. the Takumar had like much more saturated colors and yeah. it was sharper. It had nicer contrast wide open. But the trade-off you get is like the Takumar is more than double the length mounted on yes. the Sony. It's a bigger uh, lens, right? It, it's obnoxiously large with the, uh, with the adapter. Yeah. And so the Konica on the Sony is like, I mean, the size is just perfect. It's no bigger than a rangefinder lens. Yeah. Um, mounted on you know like a like an adapter it's great yeah and so i yeah and it, it I, I, that's been my experience too i mean i haven't i have never used it on a digital camera i've only used it on film um but i yeah the hand the size i would imagine that it's going to handle great because its size is re- it really is nice and the konica adapter is shorter anyway so yeah. it's like you're you know um I, I think I'm going to need to take mine out at night because I'm I'm more minded to think that there's a bit of sample variation going on here with this one and this this lens. It's quite quite possible that this lens that we're going to give away to one of our listeners might be a bit of a dud. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, when you stop it down, it's it's you know the vignetting disappears at f four. It's like much much sharper and more contrasty at f two point eight. Um, so to me, like, there doesn't seem to be anything, obviously, like, off with this lens. Uh, but yeah, I mean, give it a try. What you should try to do if you're going to shoot it at night is try to make this thing flare. <laughs> because yeah. Because it, it, it's pretty hard to make it flare. But when it does, the flare is, like, it's insane. It's just this, like, massive flare that covers the entire frame. Um, and so I actually had I'd had fun just sort of seeing how how bad I could get it to go. <laughs> see this is the thing I mean, I've got a, an album on Flickr and quite a few of those shots were, were taken at night mm-hmm. and many of them are, put, are heading into street lights at least anyway Yeah. Um, but I, I guess really the, the, the way where your shots really jumped out is because they got lots and lots uh, they got many points of light uh, tiny yeah. points of light in them and uh, whereas the shots i've taken don't they have street yeah. lights in them but they're relatively large um sources of light so you don't you don't get that effect if things if, if you've got something going wrong with the lens um but the the other things that you described i'm just not seeing in my in my shots um, i mean because uh, yeah i think you had, with one of them i think you had like a possible like field curvature going on there as well and i'm I'm just not i'm just not seeing that in my shots yeah they're um i mean like f- field curvature wouldn't get introduced in a bad copy right um like that that's not something that sample variation would cause i think the, the thing to bear in mind is the shots that i posted i was specifically stress testing this lens i was pushing yeah. it to its limit yeah. and i'm I, like i was trying to find the angle to make it flare as like as, as bad as it could um so like the for general use you won't see any of this stuff hmm. most of the time yeah, yeah. i've got i've got a few that have got a little bit of flare coming 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 into them but it's it's not it's not too bad but it, this also reminds me of something though where because uh i was having a 
chat to Jason Lane, friend of the show, Jason Lane, um, because we did a podcast with him last last week on the large format photography podcast, along with um, Steve Lloyd of Chroma Camera, uh, where we were talking about dry plates and uh, the holders that they've got uh, currently running on Kickstarter at the moment, and uh, that's well worth taking a look at. Uh, Chroma Graphica is the Kickstarter um, that's out there as we speak. Um, but we've been talking about uh, lenses any, in just in, in, in general terms, and uh, especially when we're talking about uh, sample variation. And I've always taken the view, well, this is down to how the, how the, the glass has been manufactured or how, we, how well it's been put into the lens. Because in, certain, in some cases, certainly like, like the, the Jupiter 11, uh, if you when you put the the elements back into a Jupiter 11 uh, or some of the elements at least anyway they, they don't actually sit in like little holders almost they 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 sort of balance in place and then you put your your, your screw almost like a clamp to it so it's quite possible yeah. to actually put the the elements slightly out of whack uh, quite easily and that will have a very noticeable effect um but after the conversation with Jason he also mentioned that the the, the tolerances of how the actual uh, lens barrel and the metal work can also um, cause variation. So your glass might be actually be okay. And uh, you may have problems with the actual uh, the mechanics of the lens as well could actually cause uh, issues yeah. as well, which I'd never even considered that before. Yeah. No, that, that, that I think that it, and that's why any, anytime somebody mentions they've taken their lens apart, I'm, I'm like, automatically suspect of it because it, if you haven't replaced the the elements in in precisely the right place and if they're not seated just right um bad things are going to happen and uh and that's why i don't take lenses apart personally <laughs> because if it's the type of lens where um elements are are easy to not place correctly it doesn't take much to get them a little bit crooked so Exactly. Yeah, that sort of thing is interesting. But you, but who who knows? I mean, I know that um, you had somebody competent, you know, clean that lens up. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, and and I've read a couple of reviews online of this lens, and they their findings are consistent with. Uh, yeah. What I saw as well, but I think like if you're not doing what I'm doing, like I wasn't actually taking that many actual photos i was just like how can i make this lens suffer right um to see to see how it does you know yeah. you're not going to do that most of the time it, it's a really good general purpose lens just don't shoot like landscapes with cityscapes <laughs> at night with it uh anyway so after torturing this lens uh i think give me another week or so to do some actual photography it's it's thunderstorming right now in uh, hong kong and there's tear gas flying around so it's not the best time to go shooting um <laughs> <laughs> but give me another week to do some actual photography with this, and then we'll figure out uh, how we want to give it away. I will uh, put down my X-Pan for a week and uh, use this thing. Speaking of uh, speaking of panoramas, by the way, Simon, uh, you've been posting some shots with a, with a panoramic camera. I have. Um, but you know what? I wonder, I've got two, two subjects, really, to talk about uh, this week, and uh, panoramas being one of them, but... I, I think I need to do talk about um, my trip to London first with the Lycra M2, largely because it's not entirely positive. 
and uh, whereas the uh, the riser story is positive so i think i'd rather i'd rather do the down a bit first um <laughs> and yeah i mean I, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago that i'm trying to do a project uh highlighting high contrast photography um so a few weeks ago i, I, I took the m2 out and uh, put some tri-x in it and a, and a green filter and a sumicron uh, my collapsible sumicron and uh the, yeah just in some early morning sun and to uh, get get some shots and uh last week i then went to london uh was it this week in fact it was earlier on this week i think it was yeah but my legs are still tired um <laughs> i went to <laughs> london with uh, my eldest who wanted to go to london uh, just just for a day trip and i was thinking well it's, it's quite cheap on the train as long as you get an early train that takes three and a half hours to get there and a late train that takes three and a half hours to get home again it can go really <laughs> really cheaply um so we we had six hours of uh, walking around uh, london and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great day, and I thought to myself, well, yeah, where where could be better to take a Leica M2 and try and do some street photography than going round London? Um, well, for me at least, anyway. Yeah, so it was a pretty ideal uh, thing to do, and I I packed an absolute ton of film with me. I mean, far more film than I could ever imagine I would use. But I was there thinking, well, what if I do use a lot of film? And uh, I'm not going to be very happy <laughs> if I run out. So so I, I think I took about six rolls of film with me, all different kinds, uh, all black and white, but all various uh, different things of different ages and, and so on. Um, and I also took with me uh, a pearl of a lens, a Leica Sumicron M50, aspherical, or was it aspherical, aspherical uh, lens, which um, was with me for a relatively short period of time because it is now gone. Um, I couldn't afford to keep that one myself. Sumalux, you mean, right? Sumalux, sorry, yeah. And uh, so, fifty millimeter, one point four, um, beautiful lens. And uh, so, thinking, well, you know, what 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 could be better? And and I think I, I, I soon realised that as as much as you know having the right equipment, I also took a, a Jupiter twelve with me, by the way, in case I wanted to shoot thirty five mil. Um, but I was thinking, well, fifty probably makes sense. Plus, yeah, you've got a choice between using a Sumilux and a and a Jupiter twelve, and the, and the Sumilux won't be with me for long. That's the one you're going to use, isn't it? Um, so I had this. Uh, vastly uh, expired uh, Tri-X uh, that I was using um, and, a, and a, you know, a lovely piece of kit but I found that when I was walking around even though you're in a place where taking photographs is, is something that it, it's it's just not difficult to do of people because everybody's there with the phones out everybody's taking pictures of the sites and, and so on and so on and I, I still wasn't comfortable doing it Um which is not the the fault of the camera, of course, because ultimately I, I I'd set the camera up largely for f eight or even f eleven because it was bright sun with with quite fast film, so uh, you know really get, I didn't have to worry about focusing exactly, um, which has always been the the issue that I've had with rangefinders and and as as we've heard many times on on this show that you just don't do that with rangefinders when you when you when you're taking street photography you set your hyperfocal distance up and you just compose and take your shot and move on to the next shot. So that was pretty much what I was, I was attempting to do, but I still wasn't really enjoying shooting pictures of people. I just 
just didn't feel right doing it, which is not so good. Yeah, I mean that's not that's not the camera's fault for sure. Um, but that uh, I, no, it, it makes sense though. That that sort of apprehension, even in a crowd where, like, you know, I, I shoot a lot of street photography, but I still get that um, from ta- from time to time, and it's just like that sense of, uh, you know, am I encroaching on people's like privacy oh, yeah. or their their daily lives if they don't want to be shot? It's right. um, it's one of those things that I think like you constantly if you work at it you constantly get kind of better at it but for me at least i it's i totally get i totally get what you're saying yeah well the 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 thing is now that my intention to go out there and and shoot street um i i think it completely skewed my experience of being down there and using the camera uh, because it was almost as if, like, when I, when I had that camera, I couldn't actually see anything else to take a photograph of, apart from, you know, perhaps some touristy sites where there's a big building across the River Thames or something like that that looked that look nice. Um, but I felt like I was... I, I wouldn't normally have taken that shot, uh, or may have taken it on my phone if I was a, if I was a full-on tourist or something like that. But the, I was... The, it, it, they weren't the shots I really wanted to take with that camera. And I found, and I felt that because I had that camera, I had to take a certain kind of photograph and which is something that I wasn't happy with, which also, which ultimately meant that, you know, the, the vast majority of my photographs are very, very mediocre. And the ones that I took, you know, and this, this comes back to that thing about using a certain kind of camera is going to give you a certain kind of results because it puts you in the mindset to use the camera in a certain way and because that is an area that is not only outside of my comfort zone it's just an area i just don't think i'm very good at and so simon i have a question for you on that um when you go out and shoot large format uh do you get the same thing where you, you you kind of like the camera makes you see a certain kind of shot but it just so happens to be like i don't know a forest scene rather than a street scene yeah Absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the things you know, doing street shots with with large format. I mean, you could do you could do street candids, um, but that's a that's a really. I, th- I think street photography and street candids are, are, are separate things again uh, to 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 some degree. Um, but yeah, I've, when I if I if I go out to take large format, I've usually know what I'm actually going to take, or at least I've got an idea of the type of photograph I want to take. Because that camera is going to give me something. Well, actually, let's put it another way. Um, I, I like to get the most out of the equipment that I take. So, if if I if I was into street street photography, I would I would imagine using something like uh, that Leica. It just seems like it's the right kind of camera to use. But if I if I wanted to use the large format camera, or if I was going to use the large form, format camera, I'd be seeking shots out that if you looked at the photograph, you would look at it and think there's something unusual about that photograph. And and the and what it is, it's it's something that large format is just better at than some than than something else because there are plenty of shots you can take with large format, and there will be virtually indistinguishable from a shot that was taken with a with a smaller format it's only when you you're actually using uh, the extra size of the the film to give you a different kind of perspective or you can 
shift the the focus around uh, in a in a peculiar way that you actually are going to see a difference between large format and just about any other format. Yeah, so so I yeah. think I think you're totally right on this, and it, it's interesting. I think it's a two way um, sort of dynamic because on the one hand, there's kind of sort of finding what kind of photography you want to do and what kind of photographer you are, and then finding the best tool for like getting the images that you want. Um, so you know, if you're much more comfortable shooting like scenes in a forest, then shooting that on large format makes makes way more sense than like on an M2, right? But but on the flip side, um, sometimes you know if you're it's like sometimes when I get bored of shooting street, one of the best things to do is just grab a random camera that I would never pick up to go and shoot street, uh, and then just have it like direct you to shoot the kind of stuff that it excels at. Like with the Konica, when I took it out at night, one of the shots I posted was like a bokeh shot of a flower with bokeh in the background, right? Like I would never shoot that normally. I would never shoot that. Uh, with a rangefinder, but like having that equipment, it was like, oh well, w- what is this going to kind of encourage me to do? Um, so, you know, it's 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 a bit of push and pull in both directions, uh, and and it totally makes sense to me that like having the M2 and having it excel at street photography, even if it's pushing you to do street photography, doesn't necessarily make you like want to shoot street photography if that if that's not your thing, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean the the camera itself. And and actually, for the fir- for the first time, I, I, a, a focus tab on a lens actually made sense to me, um, because I've I've never because I've almost always used these these lenses on on my Sony. Where you, and if you have a focus tab and you've uh-huh. adapted it, it, it's just it's just just gets in the way. There's not there's there isn't really a proper place to actually grip the focus ring like you would do if it was an SLR lens or for that matter many other uh, LTM lenses have got better focus grips than these these Leica M lenses um, but when you are actually using it on a on a on an M camera or that that type of camera it does it does make more sense because you just you it, it, your fingers in a natural place to actually move it um, and generally speaking, you you tend to pre-focus to some degree anyway. So therefore, right. all you're doing is a little bit of fine-tuning rather than yep. zipping from one thing to another. But even if you did, you know, the, the the throw itself, generally speaking, is actually quite short. So you can get from one to the other quite quite quickly that way. And that is why the pairing of camera and lens matters. Because, yes. Johnny, you know, when, when Simon first got this lens, uh, I was chatting with him, um, like, when you were asleep. And I was like, oh, how do you like it? It's a Somalux spherical. And Simon was like, oh, I don't like the stupid focusing tab. And I was like, dude, <laughs> put it on your M2 and the focus tab will click into place and it'll make sense. And yeah. You go. Yeah, <laughs> Def- definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, and just, just a, another another point about using the, 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 the M2. Um and and just and using using equipment and this is the this is it's a bit of a I'm not sure if it's a paradox but it, there's 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 something odd going on uh, because generally speaking if I don't like a camera I don't like a camera um, and if I do like a camera I really like it and and the the way that the camera works encourages me to use it and and get something out of it um, whereas with the the, the M2 I've I'm just not getting the results out of it that I would want. And I'm doing different kinds of photography, and it just just doesn't seem to work. But yeah. the the other side of it is, I love to use it. 
It's beautiful to use. <laughs> um, encourages me to use it, even though I get rubbish results out of it. And and uh, and I tell you what, the my absolute well, there's two two things about that camera that I absolutely adore. Uh, one is the actual rangefinder patch, and I don't like rangefinders, um, uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, but looking through the viewfinder is is just gorgeous. And but the the thing that I think about when I when I have good thoughts about that camera is the is the wind on lever. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, yeah. it's great. I mean, how, how you can get excited or you have mushy feel, have, have mushy feelings towards a camera just because they're a, a, a lever, and it's not just the action of the lever. It's that even that isn't even the the, the best part for me. It's it's, on, it's what's on the edge, uh, the actual bit that touches your thumb. Uh -huh. it's, yeah. it's it's got oh, and it's it just grips your thumb perfectly, um, yeah. and. And I still can't quite get my head around why Leica changed that for like the ones on like I mean people talk about oh M six that's that's like you know, oh I hate that articulated yeah, yeah they, they virtually no, the like the ultimate nice you know yeah yeah so yeah. why why did they do it and why did they persist with it I don't I just don't don't understand why they would do that because I've used an M six I've well, played with an M six and I'm thinking it just feels cheap compared to my M two well that's why they changed it it's cheaper to have the piece of plastic at the end right. I mean, you're right. right. I'm holding my M2 right now, and the amount of times I've picked this thing up just to like advance and fire and advance and fire, yeah. and, like yeah. advance with like three small strokes or two small strokes, it feels gorgeous. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's a, there's another camera that's got a very similar um, action, and it's the the Adixa Flex, and uh, so it's an S, a German SLR uh, camera, and it's it has that. It, I, I I guess one one influenced the other. Uh, in, it, in its design because it feels very very similar so it's it's a lot thicker um the, the bit that actually touches your thumb uh, but the mm -hmm. principle of it and the, how it how it works is exactly the same and uh yeah wonderful so yeah. so as much as like i can't get a decent picture out of my m2 i still don't want to sell it <laughs> i you know i think i think it was uh, somebody made a comment it might have been mike novak actually i think it was um made a comment that and I think you've already just you've just said it is that you you're sort of laying over on top of that camera uh, an expectation of having to shoot it in a certain way, which is not how you like to shoot. And therefore, you end up not really enjoying the camera. And I think you said you just have to shoot it and and like just shoot it to shoot it however you want to shoot it and enjoy it. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, it's difficult so, to get into that mindset, though, isn't it? When you got a, a camera's got a lot of baggage, like uh, like no, camera. you can. It doesn't have to be though. Ignore the baggage. You don't have to oh, take that baggage with you. Yeah, it's completely. It's utterly and yeah. utterly irrational, but it's there. Yeah, I guess. What well, is for me anyway? It. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Oh, what yeah. you, I, I know what you mean. I do. Yeah. It, it's funny, you know. Like, um, there are a couple of places in Hong Kong that I've gone to shoot landscapes at, like reservoirs and stuff. And I get exactly the same thing, Simon. If I go and I shoot like a roll on a rangefinder, the shots that I've taken landscapes with, I just ignore them. I'm just like, oh, these are just like random shots that don't mean anything. But if I take like literally the exactly the same photo on like a medium format SLR or even on a digital camera, like part of me will just take the the picture more seriously, even though like it's exactly yeah. the same picture. <laughs> um, so so I don't think you're being weird there. Like I have the same thing with my Roly cord as well. I love that camera. I love picking it up. I love playing with it, but like, I just, I can't, I can't shoot well with it for some reason. Um, mm. 
And yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. It's, it's a beautiful sort of machined piece of like engineering. It's, it's, it's light. It's wonderful. Um, but my pictures with it all suck. <laughs> well, my I've I've developed my first role, uh, which was uh, an ancient triax, um, and as as you've uh, commented, uh, Perry, it it looks like it's ancient triax. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So so the, that that's that's not helping my photographs either. Uh, we'll say way too grainy. I'm not a fan of grain unless I actually want to go out and get grain, and these are way too grainy. And there's just so, so here, here's the other thing, then Simon, just buy a damn fresh roll of film for once, you cheap English <laughs> bastard. Put a put a fresh roll of film in your M2 for a change. You only ever put like garbage old film in that thing <laughs> yeah well, I've, I've, I've sort of pushed me to mention that the the, the role that i put in after um, that ancient um triax was uh, a roll of 1996 orwo oh, oh jesus <laughs> like dude what, what's what's going on with these pictures in terms of how you're developing and scanning as well because i mean the listeners can't see them but i think there's some cool shots here but the the center of these images looks so much lower contrast and like more overexposed and um, sort of washed out than the edges, which are darker. Um, and it, it's kind of, it's kind of a weird look to me. Like, wait, Perry, I have a, I got a question. I think I, I, I cause I noticed the same thing, right? We were talking about yeah. this. What? So you're using a duplicator, right? A slide yeah. duplicator. Yeah. What lens are you using with your duplicator? Uh, I've just changed the lens. So some, I think these, I think the ones with the Lycra uh, are using a, a 50 millimeter 1.8 um, uh, Canon FD lens. And you're shooting it stop down? Yeah, they, they're all at uh, okay. F8. Okay. And then, very important question. Your duplicator has a glass element in it, right? No. It does not. No, it's okay. it's a it's an attachment that goes onto the end of bellows. Okay, so it's not one of the duplicators no, that has a no no no. no. Okay, all right, all right. Because I because I was gonna say it. I think there's something in the your. It's either the lens that you're using it, you know, to digitize, or the duplicators not holding the film flat, or something combination of. I, I think well now that Perry's I hadn't actually picked up about the fact that like the center of the image was 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 brighter, yeah. And I'm looking up now and I'm seeing that now, and I, I think there's an easy answer uh, to that. And it's the oh I just realised what I what an idiot I've been. Yeah, <laughs> um, <it's>, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I know I'm done. No, I've done wrong, folks. Uh, yeah, it's um, the. Uh, it's it's down to the light source, and uh, because d diffusing this has always been one of the biggest problems with uh, 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 using a DSLR to, or a, a camera to uh, digitise is getting the light source even. And yeah. I I thought I had this pretty much sorted, um, but I'm using a a rectangular, a relatively small light source. Um, at the, that's uh, rec rectangular and also we i'm using a rectangular well the, the the images are rectangular as well but i just realized that i'm i'm using i'm not orientating the images in the same way as the light source 
Ah. So there's likely to be fall off on the edges, or at least, and if it's not perfectly uh, perfectly central, then there could well be more light uh, fall off on one side than the other, which there is. Um, because it's almost as if like it's got it's almost like a, a slow shutter almost on some of the photos, and, yeah. but but not on others. And uh, and I just realised that that's that's actually what it is. Now that doesn't explain why some of them are, are a little bit soft at the edges. Um, I need to look at that when I'm actually yeah. doing the duplicating, I think. that The edges may be curled negatives or something, but yeah, I mean, your some of your horizon shots, which we'll talk about uh, next and later, I see like kind of the reverse, where there's this weird look where the edges are brighter than the center. Um, so yeah, something does seem a little bit off about the process here. Yeah, well, if you look at yeah, that, 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 that well, just just on that point, um, there, there's there'll be reason that I can understand how that could be because they the and we're talking about panorama shots now, which we'll are about to get onto, um, and those shots are stitched. So uh, uh, there's going yeah, so there's going to be a, a bit of darkness and a bit of brightness, and you can might and you might end up with this slightly unevenness, uh, the way that light comes across. Gotcha. Well, I guess you got to go back to the lab and rescan all of these. Yeah, that's deep, deep, <laughs> deep joy. Yeah. I mean, actually, that's that's one of the things. Yeah, we uh, people talk about um, shooting film versus um, digital because they don't want to sit in front of a computer. Is is usually the one uh, that that you hear people say. Uh, but mm -hmm. if you digitize your your negatives, then you're spending. I'm, I, I think I'm actually spending more time in front of a computer with my with my film in, images than I ever do with my digital shots. Simply because I've just got I've got to digitize the things. Sometimes I've got to stitch them. Sometimes I need to edit them in some way to make them so you can actually see what Earth's going on with them and getting colors mm. right and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, shoot, shooting analog to get away from computers. If you yeah. if all you're going to do is is put them online, that's a bit of a folly, really. Right. I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, like on that, I think for me, the annoying part of shooting digital is curating the images. A roll of 36, you know, you start the scan, you go get get some drinks and then come back and it's done and then you edit. Right. I, I, for me, the annoying part is sorting through like 200 digital pictures. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> and picking the ones that I actually want to edit. Whereas with film, it's like, uh, I got 36 shots. I can I can curate this pretty quickly. And you're right. You do spend time, you know, actually like, you know, dealing with the scanned file um but well the other the other side to that though is i can find the sh a shot i took three years ago or something like that far faster than i'm ever going to find a, a any of my shots of uh, on on film because they just go back into sleeves and then they go into a cupboard somewhere in a in a in no order whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> well, that 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 you gotta make contact sheets yeah, yeah, or 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 organize like your scans in in chronological order files or something. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think I generally take the view that most of my film shots aren't worth going back to. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, resol that resolves that one. Once it's digitized, I can find it. It's good enough, and uh, there 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 we go. One day I'll actually. Well, I'm hopefully I'm going to be printing some this week. Uh, on Tuesday uh -oh. night at the Six Towns Dark Room, um, excellent in, in Stoke on Trent, which I'm going to yeah. plug to at the moment. Um, yeah, that'll get you better results. Yeah, def definitely, definitely. Um, okay, let's let's move on from uh, my tragic tragic tale. Uh, although, hey, hey, can I can I ask yeah. one quick question to Johnny on this? 
Um, Johnny, I, I, I don't know if you've mentioned, I think you have, but I've forgotten. Um, what, what do you do to digitize your negatives? Uh, I've got my, my copy stand set up with my, uh, light, my light pad, my LED light pad, um, and a super cheap macro lens. Um, uh, so both and, of you use digital cameras to digitize? Yeah. I do, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't scan anything anymore. Actually, on 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 that note, we we do have a a planned show uh, um, that will be coming uh, soon, hopefully, um, and that's when Hamish has finished his Pixelator and oh, it's yeah. actually yeah. going going out. Um, so we we are going to be doing a a almost like a special on, on digitization and all the different methods oh, and, awesome. uh, and things like that. So we won't go into too much detail uh, for now. I don't think on that one. So because we'll have half a show on or a whole, whole show on the subject coming up. Soon. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just remembered as well. There's one more, one more part of the, uh, the, the M2 trip. Um, and it was uh, the, as a, as a direct consequence of having um, Ed on the show last week, uh, I was at, I was heading back to the station and, and, um, and it's not too far from Regent's Park. So I thought, well, I've never been to Regent's Park, so I'll go there. And, uh, in the entranceway, there's a, what appears to be a Jaguar E-type. And as you get closer, you realize it's just made, it's thing made of plastic, uh, but it's life size, if you like. And, uh, I was, I was thinking, I've, I've got a load of shots still to take on this, this, this roll of, uh, all pan 100 <laughs> um and uh so i thought i know i'm gonna take a bokeh panorama of this uh of this on film so um yeah so i've, I've just got to make some uh well i think i've got about one or two shots left um so in around about eight or nine months i would have finished that 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 role um and uh and then i'll i'll develop it and do the stitching and it'll be interesting to see if that if that comes out because i took probably about 12 shots um it's and i can't remember if i took them at 1.4 or f2 i might have gone to f2 on it um of this uh of this jaguar from a, a three quarters point of view uh, and then focused mainly on the headlamp so uh, that'll be that'll be interesting to see if it actually comes out whether it's just a complete disaster so uh um, that's all ed's fault if it doesn't work <laughs> um so you're gonna say something no, I said that's cool. Okay, okay, um, right. Well, that's that's uh, my slightly disappointing Leica story, uh, which is in huge. Um, well, what's just, uh, can't think of the right word now. Contrast. Contrast. Yeah, uh, to my experience of using a, a, a Horizon, this is a Russian camera, Horizon two hundred two uh, panorama camera. Um, and uh, which I, you'll be glad to hear, I use some expired film in that too. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've got lots of expired film, and uh, and, uh, and I've got I've got to say the this is largely part to Eric Eric Sluice, um, super super friend of of the show, um, who sent me a load of uh, expired film, and uh, and I'm just working my way way through that because actually there is there is this discussion, isn't there about you know, expire film versus buy buy new and supporting companies and things like that. And I think there's there's something a lot to be said about that. Um, but there's also a lot to be said about you know, can you afford to actually buy new film and 
Secondly, especially you know, when if you want to actually take lots of photographs, that's a, that's an issue. Not everybody's got the a disposable income to 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 do that. Um, the other one is uh, is I think there's I think you've got to be quite careful when you talk about the environment and shooting film because of the you know, the chemical use and things like that. But I take the view that once something's actually been made, if it can be used, I think it should be used. And so, you know, expired film, it's there, it's been made, um, carbon has gone into its into its production and whatever. And if it, if it doesn't get used, then eventually it gets to the point where it can't be used and it's just going to end up in landfill. Um, so I, I, yeah. I, I just like the idea of actually being able to use old film for, for, for that reason as, 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 many as, as much as any. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So uh, there's there's my justification, um, and um, I'm an I'm an eco warrior. Um, so um, yeah, um, Horizon two hundred two. Um, that's a it's, so it's a Russian camera um, or former Soviet Union camera. I think that's uh, made in Russia, and it uses a twenty eight millimeter lens, which is um, the the lens that we generally like least on this on this podcast, um, but there's a big difference with this, this lens, uh, which is actually unimaginatively called an MC 2.8-28. Uh, and it uses uh, a sweeping action. So uh, when you hit the shutter, well, once you've caught the, the, the thing, the cocked the camera, you press the shutter and the, the lens swings from one side to the other. Um, giving you a panorama, a panoramic shot, a panorama, and which is just odd in its in its own right, uh, and also the way you actually load the film into it as well is is very peculiar because it has a curved focal plane um, for the for the film to actually sit on, um, and that's to compensate for the fact that the the lens goes through an arc uh, to actually take its shot. So it, it it try it does its best to try and keep. Um, the focal plane parallel to uh, how the, the arc of the film. I'm sure there's a better way of saying all that, but does that make sense, guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a it's an interesting camera. It's a little bit bigger than a normal 35 millimeter camera, and, it, and it's got a, a a viewfinder that sticks out of the top that's uh, that's still built into it. But it's one of those things when you when you look through the viewfinder it just puts this big smile on your face much in the same way as uh, uh like the minolta uh panorama uh cameras the uh, like the the compact one that um that johnny has um and i've got one in front of me as well at the moment but uh, yeah you just look through them and you see pretty much what you're actually going to take and the, and the angle of view is enormous i think it's about 120 degrees some something like that and so you just you just smile when you when you when you pick the thing up, and and this and this is where things really do contrast to my experience with the with the Leica, uh, because as soon as I picked this up, I thought, oh, there's going to be so many cool things I can do with this, and and I sort of instinctively knew what to actually do, uh, to to get the most in, and 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 that's for me it was because I've always worked on the theory of filling the frame. That's always been my biggest mantra in photography. And if you fill a frame with a with a super panorama pa- panorama uh, camera or lens, however however it's going to work, you almost well for me you seem to be guaranteed to get an interesting shot. 
So I, I, I can't believe just how many shots I'm actually happy with that have come from a single roll of film. Uh, it's my, my keeper rate is just through the roof uh, with, the, with this camera. It's just great fun. I'm sitting here with a huge grin on my face. Like, yeah. Johnny, Johnny, do you want to tackle this first? Because I think we're going to say the same thing. <laughs> I just, you know, the, it looks like you're actually having fun, Simon. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, when, when when you shoot large format, it looks like you're, you're, you're sick and your mom's making you drink that <laughs> shitty medicine that tasted like <laughs> fake cherry flavor, but it was like bitter and made you want to like retch. And when you shoot the this panel, you you like you're like, oh, here's this boat that I'll shoot that's really long, and I'll shoot it on the panel, and it'll be curved, and it'll look even longer, and it'll look really funny. And then, you know, here's this here's this bird that's gonna look distorted in the middle of the frame, and that's super cool. And it's just like you're, it's like you're in, and here's this Ferris wheel that's on a horizon that's gonna look tilted even though it's flat but it's gonna look really cool it's like you're having fun it looks like you're like you're just in the zone really enjoying this camera and it's amazing i love it (laughs) and that's that's exactly it yeah it's it's just it's just pure unadulterated fun i mean that the, 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 the shot with the boat i was i went i went past the place where i took that shot the other day um uh sorry yesterday and uh and i stood on the spot where i took it and i was thinking I actually got that entire boat into this frame. How, did, uh-huh. how on earth did I do that? Because I was really close to it as well. It just it boggles the mind. You know, it breaks physics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something about shooting panos, right? It's like yeah. it's so comfortably natural no matter how wide you go. Right. Um, I mean, it's not a coincidence that when, like, TVs and cinemas and screens started um, – like getting better they got wider and wider and wider in their aspect ratio because it's just such a sort of human way to look at the world yeah. um and and again simon you know I, I i love the shots that you're getting out of this horizon and i don't think these are the kind of shots that you would get from shooting and then cropping after the fact right right like looking yeah. through that viewfinder is what lets you see the possibilities of shooting pano and it's just so much fun well you've got two two things there i mean if you if you were to shoot if you try and get the angle of view uh, in in equivalence in a, in a single lens, I'm I'm guessing you're going to be I don't know around about fourteen, fifteen mils, something like that, and then and then cropping. Yeah, yeah. And the and this is at twenty eight mil, so you're still getting the the, the viewpoint of twenty eight mil, which means that you, whatever you're taking is brought closer to you. Uh, closer to the final shot than it would be if you were using a, a, a wider angle lens, which naturally continues to push uh, whatever's in front of you further away from you to fit everything in. Mm-hmm. And this is always like one of the big things about you know going with with larger sensor sizes and and ultimately why I like uh, large format because you're using what what sound like uh, long focal lengths and you're still actually getting wide angle views and you you get a different perspective. On, yeah. on things things just look different in the same way as like you know I've used this analogy before you look at some really really old photographs that were taken 100 years ago of some famous landmarks and you turn up there with your whether it be a full frame camera or your smartphone whatever it is and you take what you think is the same shot and then you look at it you put the two side by side and they just well yeah they were the same thing but they just look different and why does the one that was taken 100 years ago look better 
and that's because it was taken on a large format camera and it's the, the mm. it's brought the interesting parts of the photograph whether it be the eiffel tower or whatever it is is much closer um to you and but but you're still getting the extra width of uh, of the because of the size of the recording media so it, that's i mean that's the beauty of uh, large format so we'll put that to one side but the the longer focal length helps um with this 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 camera simply because it it, it takes away some of, because when you do these super wide angle shots generally speaking anyway with a conventional lens you've got to work very very hard to actually put something at the bottom of the frame that's yep. interesting um, because usually what you actually want to fill is actually a little bit further away um, yeah and and if you've just got nothing or you've just got your feet in the shot because that's all that's the only interesting thing that's there uh, with such a wide angle lens then you it, it's just harder to actually achieve the shot that, than, than it does with this method yeah that's bang on um yep. i mean like with because the horizon has pretty much uh an x-pan size negative right uh, it's, I was I was looking this up earlier. Actually, I think I've, I've made some notes uh, for once. Uh, where, <clears throat> yeah, XPan is, is larger. And um, sixty-five to twenty-four. That's it. Whereas the uh, Horizon is uh, twenty-four by fifty-eight. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's close. Yeah. Whereas just just to yeah. put it into perspective, a, a conventional full frame of uh, thirty-five mil film is twenty-four by thirty-six. So it's yeah, you know, it, it's um, half as much again uh, wider. Thereabouts. Yes, so so I think the the way that I like to think about it with the lens is on the on the vertical you get the equivalent field of right. view as you would on thirty five, and yeah. then on the horizontal your field of view is like twice as wide. Right, right. Um, and you know we've talked about this before, but it, it really is the tops and bottoms that are the problem with ultra wide shots. Right. right? Um, but the other thing about the the horizon that I think is interesting is it has. A kind of distortion that's a result of the curvy lens that you don't get on an x-pan and that gives the pictures like there's a when i look at your pictures with this horizon i feel like i'm standing where you are and looking left to right <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It, it, it it makes your eye sort of move in the way that the lens does and i think that's super cool that's sort of yeah. like it's not even distortion it's just like like a almost a curved image on a flat plane yeah yeah that that's what i like about it. you're you're embracing the distortions inherent in that camera and you're you're like having fun with them it's that's what i really like about it too yeah it's almost like a pano fisheye effect <laughs> yeah it's 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 it is very odd and it and it can and it, if 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 you've got something that's like a relatively straight line but there's a bend in it as well then all hell breaks loose right which is that that shot of the ferris wheel on the Oh, yeah. <laughs> on the like on the pier or whatever it's like the, you know it just lends itself to looking really extra distorted yeah well <laughs> you know and the and the horizon looks off even though it's not which is super cool well the, the horizon smiles at you i mean yeah, it, it, exactly. you know, it's 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 higher at the sides than it is in the middle you right know, it's, right it's just utterly bizarre i mean that that particular shot you know you could you could tell i was having fun to even bother even take a shot like that um and that was um in, it was taken in blackpool and i was heading towards the central pier um at first i was thinking oh i'm gonna get a photograph and i'll get all the pier in and uh, and I, I looked at the position and i thought oh 
<laughs> that's, there's not much of the pier there, yeah, because there's just so much width that I needed to get. So I just got, had to get closer and closer and closer. And I was with, with my wife, and I was saying, I can still get it all in from here. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was, it was not. Yeah. You know, she's like looking at me as whatever, and <laughs> and uh, and then I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to keep on going. I want to see just how close I can actually get to this thing and still get that ferris wheel in and i knew that the only way to actually physically get the ferris wheel in was to do a bit of a dutch tilt and and this is where things go completely <laughs> may, it's mayhem um haywire uh when you actually tilt that lens yeah. because, i mean when you look through yeah. the viewfinder let's say lens camera um when you look through the viewfinder it, it's it's actually got a bubble um a bubble level in it so you know you you can do a pretty good job of actually getting that camera level and really unless it's perfectly level if you have got a straight horizon like um uh, uh -huh. like, like the sea uh, if you're not perfectly level it will be out it's as simple as that and yeah. uh but to to get that shot in with the ferris wheel it, it was you know doing this this dutch tilt method to get it in there when i mean you don't Wait, get... what is a dutch tilt oh you don't know dutch tilt no, no, I'm not familiar with that term. Oh, okay. Well, I do believe the term actually originated as being a German tilt, and then I think the Dutch popularized it. I think that's the uh, the view. But that's when you just take take a photograph on an angle deliberately. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, I like with the photo, it makes it, you just tilted the camera, but I didn't know there was a, a name for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a real thing. And, uh, but you know, this is not a typical Dutch tilt shot, you know, because it just goes all over the place. It's twisted, <laughs> it's bowed, it, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, but, and when you actually, in the viewfinder, you can't, you can't really see exactly that, that particular kind of effect in the viewfinder. You sort of get a, a feel for it. But for me, I was just taking the shot that I had to do it on a, on a silly angle just to fit the elements of the photograph into the shot that I wanted to fit into. Um, and, uh, yeah, the outcome was just amazing. So uh, just, you know, in a good or a bad way, depending on how you, how, how you view these things really. Um, but there's, I've got the camera in front of me. There's, there's a shot that I've not shared yet. Um, I've shared it with you guys, but I haven't shared it in any of the groups and I've, and we're recording this on a, a day early on the uh, on Sunday. What was the date today? Sunday, the twenty fifth of August. So I'm going to put this shot out either later today or tomorrow. Um, but in in the in the vein of you know just having ridiculous fun with this camera, um, one of the things about going to uh, like the seaside, like Blackpool, is there are usually plenty of seagulls about, uh, and and true to form, there were where where we were. And I was thinking to myself, well, there's an interesting thing about this lens because when you, as as always mentioned, it, it works in like a sweeping motion from one side to the other. And I thought to myself, could I actually get like a bird in flight here and actually get it to the point where the actual sweep of the <laughs> lens would actually keep pace with the bird? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I saw these. I saw these birds and. Um, and I, I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go up to these, and, and I'm this is a busy area, um, and I see these these couple of birds, and I'm got the viewfinder in there. I'm trying to keep the the camera level and all of these things, and I realised that I, I knew at the time just how stupid I looked. You know, he was, you know, people are thinking, why is he doing that? 
you know, there's just no need. But I, didn't, I just did not care, and uh, and I just I just wanted to get as close to these birds, these two gulls, as possible, knowing that at some point they would let me get so close to it, and then they would fly, and uh, they would fly from the direction of from the from the right to my left, and I was thinking, oh, this is just going to be absolutely brilliant, and uh, and I got I got the shot. Um, I've I since I since realised uh, that. When I said like the shot, the it takes from the the right to the left. I I, I then looked at the camera, and I wound it on, and I realised no, it doesn't. It works the opposite way round. So, so my uh, my theory of going from getting it, getting the bird from the right to the left was completely wrong uh, because it sh I should have found two birds that were on the left hand side going to the right. But um, I'm glad to say the shot worked. Um, so. Uh, I'll be uh, I'll be I'll be sharing that one at, at, at some point, but um, yeah, I got I got my physics wrong on that one. Yeah, it's excellent. <laughs> I just like like the enthusiasm with your voice talking about this because you're clearly having so much fun with this camera, and it's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I, I also think yeah. Sorry, go on, Johnny. No, I was gonna say this is like your spirit animal camera. Not the seagull. It's it's, yeah. it's like it's like when you you know you take you you like take peyote or something and you have that vision and you find your spirit animal and this is like <laughs> and this is like this is like simon's spirit camera yeah. it's like it's like straight from your soul yeah i have a yeah. panoramic panoramic aura <laughs> I, I mean the, the seagull shot is so good but even but even all the other shots from blackpool to, yeah. to me to me these pano shots are better street shots than the ones you've got with your m2 yeah um, yeah which, which have a vibe of kind of like a forced snapshot. Um, yeah. <laughs> whereas like these are like, because to me, a good street photo um, gets you into the vibe and the feel of the area where you're at. Right. Mm -hmm. And the pictures you've got from Blackpool, like it feels like you're at the seaside with a bunch of people just on a kind of cloudy day out. Um, and like, it, it, it feels like I'm in Blackpool when I look at these pictures. And to me, that's like what a really good street shot does. Because, yeah. you know, someone can look at this picture in 10 years and still get that same feeling of like, oh, this is what it's kind of like being on a coast in Blackpool, like staring at a seagull. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can I can definitely say that if I'd taken the horizon with me to London, I I would have got more shots and I would have I'm, I'm sure I would have got more good shots uh, yeah. as well. Uh, it just, just would have, it just what the whole trip would have been a complete blast. Um, yeah. you know, I'll be just like dragging my, dragging my eldest around, <laughs> you know, it'd be like wondering why is his dad just manically happy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. But that was uh, but the reason why I didn't take that with me. It's all Hamish Gill's fault uh, because I was chatting to him about this trip, and uh, he, he told me, "Don't bother taking the thirty-five mil, uh, and don't take the Arise, and just just take the uh, just take the Leica with the um, with the uh, with the fifty mil." Um, so uh, so yeah, Hamish, my my shots aren't very good because of you. <laughs> he just wanted you to not actually enjoy yourself. That's what that I was. think. So yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's brilliant, but you know, cameras don't matter. No, it's not. They're just they're just tools. <laughs> they're just tools. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man! So, jo Johnny, how's your uh, how are your pano adventures going? Oh man! So, uh, just to continue on the topic here, um, I I think I've found my finally found my perfect pano <laughs> uh pano combination 
So what, so what I've done is I've taken, uh, I've taken the, the mask, I've taken a Maxim panorama mask, which is a, 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 a little drop-in mask for the film gate that was made for um, a Minolta Maxim, one of the, Ma- the Maxim models, to turn the camera into a pano camera, even though it didn't have any built-in panorama function. Um, and this cool little device will pretty much go into the film gate of almost any 35-millimeter camera because the way it's designed. Um, so, of course, I my my long my long sort of thought of dream of turning a um, Voigtlander Bessa L into a pano camera has come true. So I've dropped that, uh, that mask into a Bessa L and, um, and I have the lens I have on as the 21 millimeter F four. So going back, talking about panoramic experience experiments, I have, you know, the Pentax uh, ZX5 with the uh, 17 millimeter RMC Tokina on it, which is really cool for panos. But what I realized is that 17 millimeters in pano is like insanely wide. Yeah. Insanely wide. Now, interest, it's interesting. I mean, it made me like shoot some really crazy uh, scenes and it's fun for that, but it's like, it's super difficult to get something interesting. Whereas, 21 millimeters in panorama in pano is just it's perfect mm-hmm. it's like the perfect folk so the the just to go back you know my other daily panorama shooter is the uh minolta well i always forget even forget the name of it now it's it's my minolta um x-pan is what i call it but essentially that camera has a it's a point and shoot with a 24 millimeter lens um and it's great, but there are those times when I want just a little bit more, just a little bit more space. And I'm finding that the 21 millimeter in basically the same aspect ratio is it's it's like absolutely perfect. So I've been shooting it a bunch, um, having a lot of fun with it, and uh, going to get that film to develop soon. But the handling of it and the just the uh, the aspect ratio and the view and all that is. It's just incredible. So I, I've been having a ton of fun with that, with that one as well. How how accurate is your mask on the viewfinder? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've literally taken some bits of black tape and taped over the viewfinder to what I think is a reasonable uh, facsimile of the aspect ratio of the mask um, in the film gate, but. We'll see. I've taken a lot of shots where to try to make it obvious for myself if I'm off with my masking on the viewfinder on the top and bottom. Like, you know, in other words, it'll be really obvious, right? Like things will either be cut off in an odd way or whatever. So I'll find out how accurate my uh, my taping job was. Uh, but eventually I would like to take apart um, the finder and put in an actual probably like a you know like a a a really correct aspect ratio uh mask that could go like inside the viewfinder that would be really um accurate but you know i i think i have a pretty good i I feel like i shoot enough stuff in that format that i have a pretty good sense of that it feels like i've got it about right uh but we'll see we'll see what the pictures look like all right well switching directions slightly um, I want to talk about 
a lens I do not own, but I'm currently the owner of an obsession with this lens. Uh, so I'm going to talk about that, and then we're going to do some email. Um, so the lens I want to talk about is the uh, Lights Elmar 3.5 cm, so 35 millimeter, 3.5, which is one of the uh, original lenses. It's the original, the original wide-angle lens for the uh, the Leica camera, the Barnack camera system when they were first introduced. Um, so we're talking about an early 1930s lens. Um, uh, so going back quite a ways here when the, you know, the Leica camera system itself was less than 10 years into production. Um, and the reason I've gotten so obsessed with this lens is that at Central Camera, we have a lot of old books. And a couple of books I've been looking through this week are um, the Leica manual and then the new Leica manual, which are two, probably the first two volumes that were dedicated, the first two books that were really dedicated to the Leica system. And again, you got to re remember that the Leica had been around for less than 10 years and had really kind of revolutionized small uh, camera photography, which was called miniature camera photography at that time. So they, they, they used the term miniature camera quite a bit, meaning 35 millimeter. Um, so these two books and it's, the books are again, the Leica, you know, Leica manual and new Leica manual by Morgan and Lester. So they date from the 1930s, forties, fifties. Um, and in this book, especially the first one, it's exhaustively, it's very technical kind of deep dive into how Leica cameras work and lenses. And they have these amazing photos, um, in the book of, you know, various shots, you know, shot on Leica. Um, and the, the shots that really jumped out with, to me were these shots with the 35 millimeter Elmar. Um, and the other thing that got me kind of really going on this was in the, um, version of the book, the new Leica manual, there's, um, there's an article in there by, uh, by Alfred Eisenstadt. And he talks about the way he shoots with a Leica and he talks about the lenses he used. And I think this might be a bit of a surprise to people who know his work. Um, because I've never seen this article published anywhere. It's only, you know, I've never seen it floating around on the internet, but he says in this book, and this is, you know, again, circa 1950s, he says for about 95% of my pictures, I use a 35 millimeter Elmar lens. Uh, when light is good, I can actually stop it down to 6.3 or even F9, which at which setting it's basically a fixed focus lens, he's saying. So um, very interesting to think about Eisenstadt's work because I, I think people think of him as a shooting 50 millimeters a lot, which he did. But he's saying that he he shot he shot much more of his work on 35, which I think makes a lot of sense if you look at the pictures. Anyway, um, reading that, going through these couple of books and looking at these photos, there are just some amazing shots with this lens. And part of it, it I think it's got to be said, is the film people were were using. Um, uh, the um, a lot of the film is the super pan, the Agfa super pan, um, and you know, looking at that, 
just it, I guess that that film and the way it's reproduced in the in the books, it has a it has a very particular look to it. So I think I'm probably obsessed with this old Agfa Superpan and this lens. Um, but anyway, I'm going to post a link to uh, one of the books, which is available online. The entire book as like basically a you know an online PDF. So I'll I'll per, I'll put a link into that. And keep in mind that the photos reproduced in that link are not nearly as good as you see them on the printed page. Um, but you can still get a sense of um, what the lens can do. So anyway, it's 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 an it's a very interesting old lens that I I really would like to get a hold of at some point. The problem being, of course that it's a really old Leica lens and it's kind of crossed over into collector territory. So it's a very pricey lens. <laughs> it's so small, this lens. Yeah. Just hearing you talk about it makes me want one now. Cause I realized <laughs> you could slap it on a Barnack and have right. a pocketable. Oh, yeah. It's, it's smaller than the collapse. It's, yeah. it's smaller than the 50 millimeter three, five Elmar when it's collapsed on the camera. <laughs> it's it's really really small um yeah oh uh, i think i'm gonna get one <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not all uncoated right um no, no guess, um, yeah right some of the later ones were coated and uh some of the early ones people had coded after the fact so uh, i think actually you'll probably find a lot of them are coded yeah, I've seen um, coded ones in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, and and I and I know there's a lot of versions of this lens. There's also a version of this yeah. lens that has extra close focusing capability. Um, so, you know, there there are several versions of this lens that are highly sought after. Um, so that makes things a little more difficult as well. Um, but yeah, it's it definitely has a very particular look, um, and I think even apart from being used on those vintage film stocks it would probably still have a a pretty particular look to it um i probably to some degree any 35 millimeter lens will do what this lens will do but i i do think that it does have a particular look keeping in mind that it's essentially the first 35 millimeter lens for 35 millimeter film so there's mm. there is something special about it i mean there's something special in the dna of this lens that it was essentially a brand new pretty much idea um to make this lens and and the design brief for it was you know to create a lens that uh had very little distortion had great depth of field um and it it, it does a lot of that really well it has a lot of fall off but i i like that look yeah. Um, so to me, everything about it is is very very interesting, and I I I'd really like to get my hands on one. So Perry, you need to look for two copies of this lens. <laughs> <laughs> one for you and one for me. <laughs> oh, there, there are plenty of them in Hong Kong, but they are not cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's my spewing about that lens. I'm going to post that link for the book that I I was talking about, and the book is just a really great read anyway because it, it's just so interesting i mean it's you know written in the 30s the first one and it's really talking about the like as a new system and the introduction is sort of hilarious which i'm not going to read it all right now but it's really hilarious in it's hyping of how basically it's like video killed the radio star kind of introduction you know it's 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 talking about how the Leica has completely destroyed the field of photography and created this new thing. 
it's it's really i mean it's over the top in a in a great way um so you'll want to check that out too so uh, so that that's my little rant about a lens that i don't have that will now be harder for me to get because it'll probably get more expensive um just a just a, just a thought there. Um, I've, I've never really understood why. I mean, they they may have done it, but it, it's 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 not something you see. Um, and that's why the, the the Soviets didn't take that design. I mean, they they went for the Jupiter Twelve, yeah. which is the uh, the Biogon yeah. design. And obviously, they, there was good reasons why they produced that one because you know, the reparations or whatever, however you want to look at it, when they took over the uh, the Zeiss factory. Um, yeah, but you 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 compare uh, that lens to a to a Jupiter twelve, and yeah, one looks a lot more complex to make than the other. And yeah, one, and it's the Zeiss lens is easily the more complex lens. So I, I just just wonder why they hadn't actually already started to produce their own anyway. Um, I, right, like why didn't they just? take this lens and copy it basically yeah or like make their own i, I guess this was, could be could be a question for vladislav kern possibly actually and and there yeah. may well have been a 35 3.5 that they were producing at the time that i didn't really I, you know get but out. i i don't i don't know because i feel like if there was we would it would be everywhere <laughs> well, the, and well I, uh, yeah, but it's, the, the Jupiter Twelve was everywhere because it's because it's a it's a Zeiss yeah. lens that they they took the design, and, right? And, but but and, the, yeah, but that's po but that's definitely post war. So I don't know that there is a pre war hmm. Soviet uh, version of this lens. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't, and and I and I think probably a few things. Um, I think the design. Well, the design again, they could have certainly copied the design, but it was certainly a proprietary like a design. Um, but I think a few things, I think that probably the glass they were using made a big difference in the look and the and the capability of the lens. So they probably didn't have the same glass. And I think it probably would have been complicated and expensive to make as well. Um, and you know, those, those set of factors it was probably not something that someone was just going to take on to make you know well yeah um, but you've, you've just i've just realized i just thinking about the the time scales we we're talking about uh, because the pre-war soviet lenses though you, you don't really hear much about anyway you know they right they, they they were out there they existed but you don't really hear anything about them and uh yeah uh, i i just I, I own one of those lenses, and that's the uh, the Fed fifty mil f two, uh, yeah. which I think that goes all the way back to Taylor Hobson in terms of his design. I think it's Taylor Hobson. Um, so they they there may well be something of that era, um, but ultimately, you know, you don't see many of those lenses. You know, that's a rare, yeah. that's a rare lens in itself. So it isn't. It's really the, the mass production of uh, an exported lenses didn't really happen until post-war yeah. anyway and of course yeah, you know right. every, everything pretty much shut down from the from the late 30s and didn't really get going again to the late 40s so that would also explain that that you know that that lack of uh of yeah mass, of those lenses on the market so there probably was something out there and probably is something out there but it's it's pretty rare yeah so. could could be yeah definitely could be because they, they ceased production of this lens in in 1948 right so uh i believe so i would have to double check that because it was replaced by the stumeron yes. essentially so 
which, you know, would be considered a superior lens in every way. They even, I think they even probably talk about that. No, they, so the first copy of this book is so old that that lens had not come out yet. Um, but I know that in the newer version of the book that I have, they talk about that. I mean, they basically say that, you know, the, the, the Sumeron is, you know, better in every way and it's an improvement, blah, blah, blah. But that's kind of the, the, I think that's the, the appealing part of this lens is that it has a very particular look because it's from a particular era. And, and the Sumeron's larger. It is larger. It's still oh. small, but it's definitely the barrel is larger. Yeah. I don't think there's a 35 millimeter LTM lens that's smaller than this. I haven't seen one. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I think well, there's that uh, Miyazaki. Lens. That's a 28. Yeah, that's a, I mean, right. That 28, I think, is probably a, a little smaller, but I don't think there's a smaller 35. Yeah, yeah. That I, I mean, mean the, I, the MSL one's like a body cap. Yeah, uh, I. I but in terms, you know, you know, the one I think that I I have handled that is not much bigger is the um the nikor 35 oh 2.5 yeah, yeah, yeah. Th that's almost as small actually that lens is um is very compact yeah that's uh, true yeah kind of so out a little in the middle that's it yeah 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 but i mean it has a really different look i mean a completely different rendering look um so yeah. Anyway. All right. So, so that's, that's my, that's my little mini rant um, on that lens. And then following on that, we want to read a, an email that sort of uh, is related to this. And then we're going to read some more emails, but here's the first, which is related to this lens. It's from our buddy, Eric. And the subject is podcast question. And Eric says, Hey guys, I have a question that may be interesting. Quote, why does the new version of, the new version that is the Elmar M 50 millimeter F 2.8 1994 to 2007. Like it doesn't get the love that it deserves. In my opinion, extremely sharp, great. Ufta, LOL, very small, smallest and lightest, I think, and quite a lot less money to pay when compared to a same period. Sumicron. I've seen them go for under $500 on eBay and less in the local market. You don't hear about this lens. You hardly see it used. Few pictures are published by it. Uh, just a true sleeper, or does the average RF shooter just want the Sumicron? Of course, the 50 millimeter classic by Vetzlar. Anyway, could be a nice question to put your teeth in. So, all the best from Southern Belgium, and have a great show, Eric Koss. Um, okay, so can I jump in on this one? Yes. Um, so, thanks for the question, Eric. I think uh, he's right. This lens is. A fantastic lens. Um, I've played with it a bunch, but I've only owned the uh, earlier first LTM version. I, I think the reason this lens kind of flies under the radar is for exactly what he says. Because I mean, if you get if you can find them for less than five hundred US dollars, I would jump on it. Because here in Hong Kong, they're they're going for just under like eight hundred US dollars. Wow! Um, and at that price, you can pretty much pick up a version three Sumicron. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, most people when they're looking at a 50 millimeter, a F 2.8 will, will put a lot of people off, which, which I think is, you know, somewhat unjustified, but you can understand, you know, people want a faster lens. Right. Um, but yeah, this is a, it's such a good lens. I mean, it not only is it collapsible, but like they, they really improved a couple of the handling elements and it doesn't quite like, 
um, it, it, it's it's there's some, there's something about the handling of some of the old collapsible fifties that make them feel kind of like protrudy and flimsy to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. they've got like an obnoxious infinity lock that I don't like. This one does feel a lot nicer, but uh, for a collapsible fifty, it's really expensive. Even though I think it's worth the money. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, it. I just think there's a general uh, bias against quote-unquote slow lenses and a 52.8 is a considered a slow lens as is of course a 35.35 right um because everybody wants faster lenses um and i think that to me that's part of the attraction though of these older lenses i mean people were using slower films like the films that were called super high speed films in 19 you know 40 were probably you know, ASA 200. So they were using slower lenses with slower films and doing just fine. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I think it's like, if I'm going to spend 500 on a lens, why would I want to not have an F2 lens versus a 2.8 lens? Right. Cause it's going to be more versatile. So exactly. And yeah. I think when people are picking like a Leica lens, um, the, the collapsible lenses are desirable partly for their portability yeah, and given that you can get like a version one Sumicron or a Sumar or a, or a, a, I always get Sumitar and Sumeret mixed up, um, but I think like uh, the the F two collapsibles are actually cheaper than this one, even yeah. though optically I think they are inferior. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean that's why people buy them, right? That extra stop is just too sexy, right? Well, when I when I took uh, one of the shots in in London uh, earlier this week, it was on a tube. Um, on the uh, the underground railway, and uh, I, I forget what uh, yeah four hundred film, but the light isn't particularly great down there, and I you want to keep your shutter speed to a point because there's vibrations. It's impossible to hold a camera perfectly still on on the on a, on the rickety tube, and so I I took a, a couple of shots there at sixtieth of a second, which was as as slow as I dared go. Um, and to do that, I was still actually, shoot, I had to shoot at 1.4, um, yeah. to the point yeah. where, you know, if I had this 52.8, I don't think I would have taken the shot because I know that it would have either been full of motion blur or just hopelessly underexposed. But even at 1.4, it was still underexposed, but it's, it's, it's a passable shot, uh, for, yeah. for what it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a really important point because if you're shooting outdoors, like who cares? It doesn't matter. Right. But like light is light and it doesn't really change in terms of its properties. So if you want to shoot in lower light, that, that gap between F 2.8 and then stuff that's faster than F 2.8, um, I think is the kind of bridge of usability in either like low light outdoors or artificial light indoors. Uh, 2.8 just not going to cut it at least on film, right? With ISO 400. Well, you can always push your film. Well, but see that that's part of what I think is really interesting is that if you look at and Eisenstadt has a few shots like that. And as a matter of fact, there's a I'm trying to find it. There's a there's literally a subway shot shot on like 200 speed film at, you know, probably a quarter of a second and it looks really good. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, 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 the train might have been at the station and it might no, have wedged, wedged, no, it, it, no, no, you might have wedged it up against the vertical. And, and but that's what I'm saying. Is yeah, well, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I didn't even have that luxury because wedging up against the vertical, yeah. the vertical would have been vibrating. 
so here's 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 uh, there, on page three hundred of this book. There's a photo. It says subway riders offer daily challenges of scenes for like a photographer. Fifty millimeter scimitar f two one tenth of a second. Super XX film. So here's a one tenth of a second exposure, mm. wide open at f two, and it's and it works and it's great. And the reason it does is yes, I'm sure the train was moving, right? <laughs> but if you you can. There's a lot you can do technique wise with how you hold your body and the camera and bracing and this and that you can still get sharp shots. Now he probably took 12 more shots that weren't sharp, but it can, it, in other words, it can be done. And I think what, I think what it is, is that, that in, in a lot of the photos in this, in this book, they show, um, basically a lot of effort going in to make shots that are sharp in challenging conditions. And I think that's part of what we kind of don't really do anymore because we just shoot a faster lens. Uh And I, and I think that's, what's attractive about looking at these books and looking at the photos is you can see how much planning and thought and effort and, and just work went into making a lot of these shots. And I mean, on the opposite page, there's a shot of people standing um, on the street and it's shot under marquee, you know, th- outdoor illumination. It's it, and then caption is fifty millimeter scimitar f two one twentieth of a second on super double X. So it, it can be done. It just requires a more thoughtful technique and really focusing on breath control and everything else. But it can definitely be done. And I and I just think it it's it's just it's like why not just pick a faster lens and you don't have to try as hard and that's not saying even that's a bad thing i'm just saying it's more a comment on how people maybe used to shoot this stuff versus how you shoot it now you know yeah i mean it, it makes sense because you know um nowadays i think people tend to go by the one over focal length rule for yeah holding yeah um, which is a pretty good rule of thumb and then there's like a kind of psychological block from going lower than that right um which, which i'm fully guilty of myself by the oh way. yeah me too which is why <laughs> everyone wants ibis right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but so assuming you're going by that kind of rule like obviously the faster lens just gives you um a way to make exposures in those low lights if if you're not as skillful right right yeah, well, that, so, that, so that, that you don't that, have to try. That pretty much, hard. that pretty much told me, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I do the same thing. Like, we all do, right? Yeah, like, I wouldn't shoot one tenth of a second on a subway. <laughs> no, <laughs> unless I want to right. It's yes, it's really difficult, and and right. But I mean, I guess that's what is inspiring me a little bit about this book mm-hmm. is that it's definitely possible, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and. Anyway, the Eisenstead article, he talks a little bit about that technique-wise, like how he shoots in low light. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I think they're, 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 they're really interesting lenses. And um, I, I'm probably ultimately just as guilty of that, though. I, I mean, I don't think I would – the first thing I would spend $500 on would be a 50-millimeter 2.8 LMRM, you know? Um, so – yeah, I, 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 it's just, it's just a, it's a, the nature of the world we live in now and how we do things probably. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's comparing with other options. Cause I think, you know, the two modern ish collapsible lenses that Leica made the, this LMRM and then the 90 F4 collapsible macro, 
Yeah. Um, like those are really nice lenses, but they're people just don't buy them as much. All right. Well, shall we move on to hit uh, the other email here that we have? Yeah. Okay. Um, why don't we start with 3D pop? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, subject 3D pop uh, from Jay Buie, B U I E. Um, <laughs> what in Sand Hill is 3D pop? In 50 years of commercial photography work, <laughs> your podcast is the first place I've heard this term. Jay. Mississippi, USA. All right. So. <laughs> well, I think the, the, the first answer there is it's all Carl's fault. It's all Carl's fault. It yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, Carl yeah. was Car- Mr. 3D pop. Carl is Mr. So one of the, can I just tell a quick story? And because Simon is the only other person on the planet who knows the story. Um, we at one time were plotting a Simon 3D pop drinking game for the podcast where we were going to see how many times we could get Carl to say, 3d pop and then we were going to re record an intro before that episode that said every time you hear 3d pop you should be having a sip of a beverage because it's the 3d pop game and we never got to do it and i'm still sad that we never got to do it but we thought about it at least because carl loved his 3d pop (laughs) yeah it was it was it was it was obsessed by it, and the, I think that was actually the reason. That was the thing that took him over the edge uh, for him to dip, uh, lose lose the um, his Olympus Micro Four Thirds camera and go yeah. and go full on Sony to go full frame to just get that three D pop effect that much easier. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So I know Perry's going to talk a bit about three D pop, um, and I, I, I just yeah. yeah, and I just wanted to throw out there that that. Um, Perry, of course, will be able to articulate it better than I can uh, because Perry can articulate anything better than I can. But um, I will say that there is a, uh, well, let's call it a white paper <laughs> on uh, Zeiss.com uh, Lenspire that I, will, um, that I will also put a link for where they go to great lengths to try to justify the use of the term 3D pop because I think in a lot of ways Zeiss would like everyone to believe that their lenses do in fact have a special something called 3d pop, right? Uh, uh, also known as micro contrast. So, so there, there, there is a, a scholarly look at that on the Zeiss website that I'll um, throw out there, but Perry's going to talk about 3d pop a little bit too. I think this is one of those terms. I mean, I'm guilty of using it all the time. I think this is one of those terms that means something different for and everyone. Yeah. Um, because for some, uh, they use it to mean like depth of field. For some, they use it to refer to micro contrast. Um, I, I think it's a combination of a lot of different factors. But to me, the way I understand the term is like photography is a 2D medium, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when we perceive the world with our eyes, there are kind of like visual cues that well, A, we have two eyes, which helps us perceive things in three dimensions. So on a two-dimensional medium, there are visual cues that help us kind of understand um, both depth and kind of relationships of distances. And so there are some images where when you look at them, the you perceive them in a way that look a lot more real to you. And that to me is what sort of 3D pop articulates. Like 
the stuff in the picture just looks 3D rather than 2D and flat. Um, I spend way too much time thinking about this in terms of like, oh, is it contrast? Well, no, it's not contrast because it's not just contrast because if you took like a super high contrast like picture with just blacks and whites, it wouldn't have 3D pop. Um, micro contrast, which it, which you can see most on kind of flatter images, that kind of distinction between similar tones seems to be correlated. Um, but ultimately, like to me, I, I think there are a couple of factors involved. Number one, it's different for every person who who views an image because everyone kind of just has a slightly different perception. Um, but number two, I think lighting makes the biggest difference. Um, so you can get kind of 3D looking images if you have certain kinds of directional lighting or mixes of soft and hard lighting. Uh, depth of field definitely makes a difference. But as Simon has mentioned before, it's not a case of like, you know, shooting at 0.95 so yeah. much as getting a perfect depth of field so that your eyes can sort of subconsciously perceive the relative distance of things in the shot. And then the subject like really sort of stands out with that perfect depth of field. Um, yeah. But, but ultimately it's just like when you look at a picture and the subject like almost jumps out at you. Um, contrast has a lot to do with it as well. And I think like some lenses are inherently better at rendering uh, sort of 3D poppy looks, especially in bad lighting. You know, like the 35-2.8 Biogon is a lens that, that I rave about all the time um, because in crap lighting, it is able to render kind of micro contrast and contrast and depth of field in a way where subjects just jump out of the frame for me, even if I'm shooting at like F8. Yeah, I hope I hope yeah. that made sense. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, me too. But you've explained my my take on on three D pop there as well. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the, I, I suppose the micro contrast part is just the way that the subject that you've you've taken and uh, yeah, we touched upon the the bit about the depth of field being correct. So, for instance, if you're taking a picture of a person. Um, then their their body will be sharp and the background will be blurred. <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me. And the idea will be that you you control your depth of field, so it's it's pretty much exactly the depth of the subject or the person that you've you've taken. So anything in front of it or anything behind it will be out of focus to to whatever degree. Um, so that yeah. that's 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 like. How, how to achieve it if you like but yeah. the 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 main the, the the other point though about micro contrast is just the way that how the subject that you've taken how how defined that subject is against the, the against the blur and i think if you've got a a, a pretty high contrast if you've got quite quite high contrast to the edges, so this I think this is where the, the micro contrast comes in. So the the way that the the edges of the of the subject is defined, and if it's really really sharp, then you're going to see that it's it's going to jump off the uh, the, the the photograph more so than it would yeah. do in if 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 you're using a lens of lesser contrast, even if you've got the depth of field correct. Yeah. And, yeah. and there are a lot of people who are going to say, like, oh, this doesn't exist and this isn't a thing. Um, but I think, like, the most convincing way to... The thing that convinced me that this is a thing is actually not photography, but looking at paintings and sketches and illustrations mm. where it's very clear that when you render kind of tones or sketch and paint light in certain ways um, on a painting or, or an illustration, 
that sometimes you just like nail it and it, it, it jumps off the page and you perceive it as 3D, even though someone has drawn the thing, right? So it's yeah. that kind of like perceptual impact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, when, when something's actually painted, you've, you've, you absolutely have that hard edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's an it's an analog hard edge, isn't it? It's it's whereas on it, this this can be quite harder to achieve when it's on well certainly on film and even on on digital, uh, just to get that definition between what's in focus and what isn't. Yeah, yeah, and I, the other thing I would add is that um, film like format makes a huge difference. Like you can oh, yeah. make. On medium format and larger, you can pretty much make anything 3D pop. It's a lot harder to do on smaller formats. Like I, you can. It's so easy to make things do it if on with certain medium format cameras and lenses. There are a few different combinations that will just pop like crazy, and it's just that it's just inherent in the fact of using a bigger piece of film. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And I, I'm saying film and not sensor because we're really limited in how big our sensors are at this point, still for the most part. Um, and, but you, you really, I mean, you can look at, you know, photos shot in the 1860s that have 3D pop, no problem, because you're looking at, you know, a big glass plate with a a, a lens that was shot close to wide open and it pops like crazy and it's got incredible definition depth to it. Right. Yeah. So a lot of it, I think is film format too. Um, yeah. When we had a pair on a couple of episodes ago talking about the GFX. Yeah. Um, we had a discussion where he was saying that he thinks 3d pop just refers to depth of field, but I really don't think that's the case for exactly what you just said, Johnny. Cause to me, every single large format portrait I've ever seen is <laughs> just like using 3d pop. Right. And if you get a 35 millimeter shot with exactly the same depth of field, uh, it doesn't have the same look. Right. Yeah. It doesn't pop. Exactly. Out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, and the one that comes to mind for me all the time is there is this, um, there's a couple of them from the American Civil War era. There's, um, there's a certain photograph of Abraham Lincoln, and there's a certain photograph of Frederick Douglass, and they look, they look like supernatural. because first of all, it's hard to believe these people were actually once actual people because they're such, you know, huge figures sort of, but also just the photographs themselves have this like incredible three dimensional depth to them um, that are sort of mind blowing. So it, you know, you, you, it's, I I do think it's more than um, just depth of field as well. It's the medium too, like um, yeah. glass plate. Yeah, pops like crazy. it does. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Well, all right. I was going to say you mentioned glass plate, so that's that's my intro there again. <laughs> that's, uh, if, you, if you want to know more about glass glass plate photography, uh, listen to this week's uh, large format photography podcast uh, with uh, with uh, Jason Lane and uh, Steve Lloyd and uh, my co. Uh, I'm going to call him co-captain. Well, that, I'm not on the uh, negative positives podcast, <laughs> but uh, well, whoever, yeah, I'm going to, he, he is now at least anyway. And that's um, Andrew Bartram, and um, and those. It's, it's that's that's one of those areas where uh, large format really stands out for exactly the reasons that, that Johnny has, has, has said. There, the the images just look quite unlike uh, 
you, you just can't well i suppose if you're particularly good in photoshop you can you can get some kind of approximation of, uh, of the look that you get and you can get filters that will uh, make um, smudges all over the place and make it look like it was potentially done 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 that way but there's just you can't beat the the original and uh and what's yeah. also amazing is just like the i don't think there's any grain in the in those images i don't i think they're actually grainless um so you you you, you expand them and they just just seem to just keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the the, the look is absolutely beautiful yeah yeah all right well let's shall we move on to our um last couple of emails yeah i think i think we've got two two emails which we we can do really really quickly and then yeah let's yeah. do the, yeah, the last one after that okay so the next one is from uh aaron alfano and his question is regarding uh light tax conversions and he says good afternoon gentlemen i've been curious about the light tax conversion kit for modifying contacts yashica and leica r lenses to nikon and pentax mount today i found a local dealer who is selling two mouth-watering zeiss contact cy mount lenses at what seem to be reasonable prices i'm not too interested in getting into yet another lens mount system but would love to be able to use these lenses on my nikon cameras do any of you have any experience with light tax conversions if so what are your thoughts thanks and keep on keep up the good work with the podcast aaron alfano Okay, well, um, I know Johnny and Perry have, have, have not got a huge amount on this one. I haven't got a huge amount on this one either, except uh, just to explain what, what happens. I believe the mount is replaced, so you can put your contact Yashica uh, lens um, with a, a differently sized mount that will then go onto a, a Nikon camera, and it will uh, focus to infinity. And I believe it's reversible as well. Um, but if it wasn't reversible, I wouldn't be very happy at all about that. Um, but it is, it, 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 I believe it's, it, it is reversible. Um, somebody that does uh, do that is a uh, friend of the show, M from Emulsive, uh, because he's uh, converted a few of his lenses over to uh, uh, use on, on, on Nikon. So um, if you want to have a bit more first-hand uh, advice on that one perhaps you might want to send him a message via emulsive.org and uh, he can give you some proper advice all right um and next up uh our last email which i'm just gonna say we're not really gonna dive into this whole email right now um i'm i'm gonna read it it's a suggestion um but we're gonna kind of leave it as a suggestion and maybe deal with it in another episode um but it's from, um, and I'm going to try to get the name here right, uh, from Bader Almaraf. Um, and he says, Simon and the rest of the team, I am a keen follower. Enjoy the podcast from episode three. Never missed an episode since then. Well, thank, thank you very much. That is cool to hear. And he says, sorry for the loss of your friend, Carl. Uh, I have a suggestion. There is a great YouTuber, amazing storyteller, who seems to have experience and knowledge about legacy stuff. I urge you to watch this 25-minute recent episode. And there's a link here. Um, and he says, and maybe try a, to approach him. I think he lives in Australia. Many thanks, uh, Batter. So we will, we will look at that uh, link. And yeah, we appreciate the suggestion. Um, and maybe that's something we can do in a future episode. Yeah. Uh, did you hear a, a small amount of music then, by any chance? 
I did not. Oh, that's okay. So it's just on my earphones. So I'm just trying to go onto the. Uh, um, uh, I'm just. I'm just going onto his, onto the actual um, YouTube link at the moment. So it's playing music in my ear, very very loud at the moment. But I'm trying to let people know what the name of the person is. So. Uh, why do we take photographs? Hi, my name's Terry Lane. Terry Lane. And there from time... So, oh, uh, so okay. that's, that's the name of the chap anyway. So, yeah, we'll put we'll put a link in there. And, um, yeah, we'll have a listen to that when we get the chance. Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks for the suggestion. And uh, we do appreciate your emails and suggestions. And we know we have other email that we have yet to read from previous uh, previously sent. But we will try to get to everything at some point in time. So... Keep them coming. Um, okay. Uh, do we have other topics, gentlemen? I, or? I, think, I just realized I think we have actually done the emails now, haven't we? I thought we had one more, but we did. We it, done it, was a, it was 3D pop as well, wasn't it? So, uh, so yeah. I thought there was more from like previous weeks that we'd still not gotten to, but. There could well be. Actually, I know that Andrew Bartram uh, keeps reminding me that he wrote to us about what's, what's all this <laughs> business about aberrations. So, uh, uh, okay, yeah, that'll be one that we need to chat to Jason Lane about when when we get him back in the near future. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, okay then. Um, think, so, yeah. Simon, are we gonna? We we need to wrap up now. We've been we've okay. been talking for long enough, haven't we? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, before we do any quick uh, a quick one last uh, around the table thing, let's just see how we're doing on coffee donations and. I usually have this page up, but I didn't. So let's see. It's coming up now. Right. Okay. So uh, that was Nigel Cliff the other week. Uh, we did that one. Yep. We've had uh, two two donations since last week, uh, and uh, both of them from Mike Epstein or Epstein. And uh, so thank you very much. And, uh, and these put on their uh, three coffees for our three hosts. Thank you. Thank you for keeping the gas alive. And thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. Um, but that's it. So if anybody wants to um, help us along, um, you can just go to coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com. And actually, I'm just wondering if we actually mentioned that we had a couple of recurring payments as well from uh, James Thorpe and Brian Ward. So uh, thank you for those as well. We really appreciate that. So, Perry, um, anything else you might want to get off your chest very, very quickly or any shout outs or anything like that? Uh, no, I think I'm good. Okay, Johnny? Um, no, no, I think we're good. Okay, well, Perry, then, how can people keep up with the things that you get up to outside of this podcast? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Flickr, or my website, which are all P-E-R-R-Y-G-E, and .com for the website. Okay, and Johnny? Uh, you can find me at Sisson Photography on Instagram, um, and you can find me at Central Camera Company in Chicago um, most days of the week. So stop by and say hello. That's cool. And uh, what, what's our presence on Instagram? Uh, well, on Instagram, you want to follow Best Vintage Lens. Uh, and they, uh, they feature you know, classic lens photos there. Um, some great stuff to be seen there. And they also uh, kindly provide a review of this podcast on a semi-regular basis. 
and insightful and interesting review of this podcast uh, will be found over there on Best Vintage Lens as well. And we do thank our friends at Best Vintage Lens for that work that they do, which of course is better than the podcast itself. It is. Uh, yes. So check that out. Um, and uh, again, please continue to send us emails. You can do that at uh, classic lenses podcast at gmail.com. You can of course find the podcast itself at classic lenses podcast.com um, and connect with us there and see all or listen to the, all the back episodes, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and yeah. Is, is there another way that people can listen to this podcast? As a matter of fact, there is. Oh, wow. You, you can do so with visual aids if you so choose. And you can do that apparently, <laughs> apparently, haven't checked it out myself yet, but you can do it over at YouTube. Um, and you can see how it tries to translate all of the crazy things that we say, because apparently it does try to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so check that out. Yeah, it makes as much sense as we do at times. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Um, and uh, I can be found on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. I'm on Twitter as Simon Fool. Um, what else am I? I'm on Flickr, but I still haven't put anything on Flickr forever. Um, I have a website where I'm selling stuff, uh, which is simonforster.co.uk. I also have a eBay. Uh, shop and there are quite a few bits and bobs on there which might be of interest to people um, and links to how to find me on there will be in the in, in the show notes so that's it um, I want to thank Kevin McLeod for our music which is Octo Blues and that's uh, that can be found on incompetech.com um, so I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and if you can be like Carl Something to listen to in the meantime. Here we go. You ready? Whoa! <laughs> That's the horizon, right? It is, yeah. Wow. Here it goes again. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> this is the X-Pan in contrast. Oh. Oh, my God. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Don't want an expat anymore. There's no life. There's no life in the shots. You know what? You know, here's what's funny. I was actually yesterday at the shop. Somebody was asking me about the. Uh, we have a Wide Lux Seven. Uh, so I was, you know, I was messing with the Wide Lux Seven with them, and so it's really funny having shot the Wide Lux Seven several times yesterday, which makes essentially the same sound mm-hmm. as uh, your Horizon makes. But it sounds like your horizon is like a, 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 a like, um, you know, those wind up toys that were made of metal where you wind them up with a little key thing and they, you know, zoom across the room. Yeah. That's what, that's what yeah. your camera sounds like in yeah. really in comparison to the wide Lux, which is like yeah. basically a smooth version of. <laughs> yeah. I've got no doubt about that whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> which makes me really, really want a horizon because Vl- Vlad has trying to, been trying to hook me up to get a uh, a horizon for ages and now i just i have to get one yeah <laughs> so, you nice. do you absolutely yeah. do i have to get one <laughs>